The Outlet. The talk of Queenstown. Welcome to The Outlet. I'm your host, Brent Harbour. In this podcast, I talk to Jake Bailey. Now, Jake's speech from 2015 at Christchurch Boys High School went viral. A week before this speech, Jake was diagnosed with the most aggressive form of cancer known to man and given two weeks to live if this went untreated. Jake is now in remission and works full-time on the psychology of resilience. Te Toka, Southern Lakes Wellbeing Group and Central Lakes Trust is bringing Jake out ahead of Mental Health Awareness Week, which is on from the 18th to the 24th of September. We talk about his journey to where he is today, the common questions he gets asked, and why the Southern Lakes area is so important to him, especially Queenstown. G'day Jake, welcome to The Outlet. Hey Bren, thanks for the opportunity to be here, it's a privilege. You're very welcome. Well first of all, welcome back to New Zealand in the lead up for Mental Health Awareness Week. You've been through an incredibly challenging journey battling cancer, and your speech from 2015 at Christchurch Boys High went viral, and it resonated with so many people. And now you work full-time on the psychology of resilience. So can you please share how your personal experience has shaped your perspectives on mental health? Yeah, sure. So I guess in in terms of how the the experience that I went through with my cancer has led to the work that I do now, I think I came through that that experience with cancer and and had a pretty solid uh, realisation or understanding of just how impactful skills and tools around resilience had been through that experience, right? Going through that massive period of adversity, my cancer, my treatment and everything which came with that had given me some some strategies, I suppose, that I'd learned through that journey, which then when I applied them to other challenges that I was going through in my life post-cancer, I realized that I was basically a whole lot happier as a person, right? I was I was more effective, I was more efficient at overcoming some of those those challenges that we all face on a day-to-day basis. And as a result of that, my life was better. And I guess I came away pretty fascinated and fixated on this concept of resilience, why some people are naturally more resilient than others, what it takes to be resilient, whether we can teach people these skills and tools around resilience, and if so, how best we can do it. And that sort of set me on the path where I've been for the past yeah, six or seven years now in terms of studying and working with, with companies and organisations and people around yeah, how best we can prepare people to get through tough times. Because the reality is, you know, adversity in our lives is inevitable, right? And I suppose my story is a great example of that because my cancer, my adversity was so far from unique or special. In fact, it was incredibly common, right? Uh, I guess that speaks to the fact that we all go through challenges and we all face uh, difficulties in life. How happy and how uh, how successful we are over the course of our life is dictated almost solely by how quickly and efficiently we can bounce back from those things which do go wrong. Yeah, that's right. Because I, I mean, when something is over, you go, oh, phew, I got through that. And then the next thing is hurled at you in life, isn't it? 100%, absolutely. I mean, that's just what life is. I mean, there's, there's plenty of positive and plenty of good along the way. But the reality is that life is just a series of challenges, whether they're bigger or smaller or easier or harder to deal with. Adversity is, is inevitable, right? So it's pretty important that we have some tools and skills to help us deal with that. So Mental Health Awareness Week has a theme. It's five ways in five days. Could you tell me a bit about how your resilience strategies align with this year's theme? So in terms of the the overlap that there is between the resilience side of things and the, and the mental health side of things, I mean, first of all, it's really important to note as well that you can't create some sort of false equivalence between resilience and mental health. 
because when you say that you know having high levels of resilience leads to good mental health then you create the inverse of that which is that poor mental health as a result or as an outcome of a lack of resilience which is not true at all i mean negative health uh, negative mental health situations and, and, and challenges in that regard are you know, a common experience for many people and that's not as a result of some internal failing or shortcoming the idea of trying to build up some skills and tools around resilience is just to ensure that people are as well positioned as possible to get the most out of life and to be able to bounce back quickly and efficiently from those challenges so in terms of the, the overlap and the interplay there's certainly quite a bit in common the work that I do around resilience and the psychology of resilience is all very much evidence and research based. And as a result of that, and the fact that the five ways to mental health uh, well-being are also evidence and research based, there is quite a bit of interplay between those two. Particularly some of those key points are around people and, and leaning on people for support around you. We know that from, from research and studies that having that sense of community and sense of belonging is incredibly important. And I think that for, for this region and this part of the world, that's that's really important as well because a sense of community and a sense of belonging in this place, I think, is a big part of what keeps people resilient and keeps people strong during the adversity which this part of the world has faced over the past couple of years. So you've shared your research and your strategies with over 85,000 people worldwide. Are there any common challenges or questions that you know, come up repeatedly regardless of the audience? Yeah, sure. It's interesting. A lot of the work which I do is around uh, high school students and teenagers. That's uh, it's probably the bulk of my work. And it's, I suppose, I, where I, I feel most of my passion lies is working with young people, simply because I can just see how, how much potential, I suppose, there is, right, to create positive change and outcomes in people's life at this stage, whilst they hopefully haven't had to go out and face some of life's biggest challenges yet. Hopefully, while they're still getting the opportunity to prepare for those big challenges coming their way, if you can capture and work with young people and teenagers at that stage of life, then you set them up for, for amazing success, right? And so when, when I work with high schoolers and, and teenagers, and I've worked with uh, many tens of thousands from such a wide range of different backgrounds and countries and cultures, but particularly when it comes to the adversities that young people and teenagers worry about, there definitely are some common recurring themes. And they're probably things which, which you and your listeners, and certainly I relate to as well, um, the ones that come to mind off the top of my head would be a fear of the future. A lot of young people have a real level of concern around what they're going to do with themselves until they're old enough to retire, right? And I certainly remember being in high school sort of sitting there and thinking, God, what am I going to do until I'm old enough to retire and, and sit back and drink tea like my nana does all day? There's a real concern around the fear of other people's opinions, which is that self-consciousness, insecurity, which we often see with, with teenagers as well. And then there's something which we sort of call fear of the small stuff. The small stuff being defined as things which won't matter in five years' time. And that's often exam results and academic results, not always. It's often sports results, it's fallouts with your mates, it's relationships often at that, that time of life as well. It's the little things which can accumulate and create a huge weight of pressure and discomfort for young people. And so, yeah, I guess the, in part that's why it's so important for them to have some, some tools and skills so that those... Uh, pressures of that period and time of life don't accumulate and build up. But yeah, certainly in terms of the common themes and 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 yeah, the the mutual adversities which are shared by people, it's amazing just how universal those are across yeah a wide range of backgrounds, countries, and cultures. Yeah, well, I think things have changed. Uh, my my daughter's my eldest, twenty three. She left school a few years ago. My twin girls are turning twenty this year. They left school last year. And I, I think the difference between when I was growing up and what they had to deal with 
it's really hard even for the parents and the people around them to navigate through that. It's better if their their peers are helping them along, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And I think that there's still a role for parents to play within that as well, of course. I think that whilst the challenges might present themselves quite differently, and obviously with you know the rise of social media and, and changes in how young people interact with each other in that regard, I think that the core issues in the heart of that adversity, those three things that I just spoke about before, the fear of the future, the fear of other people's opinions, the fear of the small stuff, I think those things have remained pretty consistent and constant throughout the generations, right? And so I think that for parents as well, they have this really unique ability to connect with their their young people and their teenagers across the issues and adversities which their teenagers are facing. Because even if they don't necessarily present in the same way, what lies at the heart of them is probably still remarkably similar to to what we've all gone through in that age and stage of life, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Now, your book, What Cancer Taught Me, has touched so many lives. So what is the most important message you hope readers take away from your book? Sure. I mean, yeah, in terms of what I suppose cancer has taught me at its heart, or probably the most important thing that cancer has given me, and I can only speak to my own experience, of course, but for me personally, you know, I came away with an understanding of the fact that without sort of being too on the nose with it, an understanding of the fact that each and every day there are dozens of young people who are you know, my age at the time or younger or, or my age now uh, who through no fault of their own sort of have their, their, their light snuffed out prematurely. Not dozens of them every day, but certainly dozens every day who are in that ward, who are facing that battle, who are going through those, those challenges. And for me, you know, I um, feel incredibly fortunate and I was incredibly fortunate to be able to be one of those lucky people who walked out of that place and, and, and not one of those people who, who lost that, that fight. And so for me, I suppose I feel a sense of responsibility to basically go out and live my life to the fullest on behalf of those other people who don't get the opportunity to do so, right? Because I think if the roles were reversed, that's all I would have ever asked is that the people who did have the opportunity to get out there and to move forward in, in the world took that with both hands and, and grasped it and ran with it, right? But I think that, you know, I've sort of mulled over this and pondered this. I think that most people can understand why I would feel that sense of responsibility. The thing is, I don't think that that's a responsibility which I bear alone because I can't figure out any logical reason why it would be. Because is it my responsibility because I was lucky? Is it my responsibility because I met these people? Is it my responsibility because I saw this place? I don't think so. I think that actually that's a societal responsibility which we all share, basically to get out and give things our best shot, give things our, our best nudge. And that's certainly the approach that I take with life now is to to try and get out and to live life to the fullest on behalf of those people who don't have the opportunity to do so. I suppose if there's anything which I'd want other people to take away from from my book or from my story, it would be that same message. Just get out there and just live life to the very fullest on behalf of those who, who don't have that opportunity to. That is such a great message. It's great to have you back in the Southern Lakes community for the lead up to Mental Health Awareness Week. Now, Queenstown in particular holds a special place for you with regards to a New Year's Eve when you were 18. Can you please share that story and the impact it had on you at the time? Yeah, Brent, I was I was seriously impressed that you uh, that that you recalled this story or knew this story at all because it was something which started out sort of top secret and it's become sort of my worst kept secret now apparently. But the story was uh, in the lead up to my diagnosis was through through 2015. Obviously, at the time I was in my final year of high school and as 
so many young people do, I was planning to uh, descend on the Queenstown area for New Year's. Now, now that I have family who are locals in Queenstown, I probably view that time of year through a slightly different lens or a more sympathetic lens than I did as an 18-year-old. But as an 18-year-old, I was very, very keen to to get down to Queenstown and to uh, to sort of let loose and to enjoy that that time with my friends, uh, that, that post-school leavers time, that exciting period of life. Obviously, with my diagnosis, this was uh, a spanner which was thrown in the works because the New Year's period was right through the middle of my treatment and it became a bit of a recurring theme once the, the I suppose, the initial shock had worn off from the diagnosis and things had become a bit more settled. And as my, as my treatment began, began to progress particularly well, I began to ask nurses and doctors whether they thought I'd be able to go to Queenstown for New Year's as I had originally planned. And the answer was always a resounding no. And it was a game of cat and mouse where I would ask as many different doctors and as many different nurses in as many different ways as possible just to try and identify sort of the, the weak link in the chain that I could kind of break through and, and, and be able to get to Queenstown for New Year's. Anyhow, to cut a long story short, that never happened. And I ended up sitting at home uh, on the couch with my mum, it was about five or six o'clock in the afternoon or early evening uh, on New Year's Eve. It was just me and my mum at home, which is, of course, where every 18-year-old guy wants to be on, on New Year's Eve, right, sitting at home uh, on the couch with their mum. And I uh, turned to my mum and I said, you know, I'm going to go for a drive just to, uh, just to sort of take my mind off things. And as I walked out, I sort of jokingly said, I'll see you tomorrow when I get back from Queenstown. And mum kind of replied off the cuff, okay, great, don't forget to take your medication. And I think she'd sort of seen that I was was reaching sort of breaking point in terms of what I could take. And anyway, I made the trip. I got to spend that New Year's with my friends uh, down there, which was really special. It was, it was normality for me. Uh, it was an amazing experience. And then I came straight back up the next day and I was back in hospital the following day for more, for more chemotherapy, more treatment. But I still certainly have very fond memories of of that New Year's in, in Queenstown, that's for sure. Was your mum calling you every hour? <laughs> I was updating mum every hour along the way. Absolutely, <laughs> there's yeah, there's, there's a lot of a lot of bits and pieces to that to that story, which I'd have to sort of take a lot longer to do it justice. But it all worked out well in the end, and so I can't really complain. Uh, I'm very, 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 very grateful that it did. Look, you know what goes on in Queenstown stays in Queenstown, Jake. It's just the way it has to be. Now, you're an ambassador for two charities, the Meyer Health Foundation in New Zealand and Tour de Cure in Australia. So how do these charities help further the cause of mental health and resilience? And how can people get involved, Jake? So first of all, with the Meyer Health Foundation, I mean, the Meyer Health Foundation uh, exists to support projects within the Canterbury District Health Board to try and take the provision of services in that, that, that region, that area, from, from good to great to try and go above and beyond to provide support for the amazing professionals who work in that environment and, and to thereby support the, the patients who go through that system. One of our most recent projects that we've been working on is funding for the child youth and adolescent mental health facility for Christchurch. The demand and need for a facility for, for that region and for the whole South Island has just been growing for the last decade. It is under-supported. It, it, it's not been sufficient in terms of the provision for young people there and so the funding and, and, and the work that we've been doing has been going towards building better facilities and building a central hub that allows young people to get the support which they need in a comfortable warm and, and comforting environment with with the people who, who care to help them. So the, the work that Maya does is, is absolutely brilliant and even from a, from a patient perspective I know that the time that I spent in the hospital 
I was treated with the most exceptional care by the staff there, but often with an understanding of the fact that the facilities which they had to work with at the time were not to the, the same standard as the care which was offered by those amazing people in there. And so I think to be able to lift those, those facilities and the standard of those facilities to the same level as, as the patient care goes a long way to support the, uh, the mental health and the resilience of patients during some really difficult times for them. In terms of Tour de Cure, Tour de Cure is a uh, charity who raise funds for uh, cancer research, support and prevention projects. And they've done some incredible work over the time which they have existed and raised some really amazing uh, amounts of money and, and funded some serious breakthroughs in cancer research. But of course, some of the, the, the funding which they create is also provided for cancer support, right, which... As we all know, and, and we do all know because we almost all know someone who has been through that experience and been through that challenge in terms of cancer, having that support and, and having that wraparound care for them during that, that period, during that time of challenge for them, goes such a long way to, I guess, allowing them to get through that period and to ensure that they do so with as, as, as good mental well-being as possible, right, and, and to enable them to be as resilient as possible. So I'm, I'm really, really fortunate and really privileged to be able to work alongside both of these charities and have been for about seven or eight years now. If anyone else wants to, to look into it or to get involved, then feel free to check out their websites and, and go and look at some of the amazing projects and work which which they do. So if people want to find out more about your journey and, and what you're involved in, where should they go online to check that out, Jake? I think probably the best place to, to, to keep up with my work and to reach out to contact me is my website, jakebailey.co.nz. Certainly not as, as proficient in the social media side of things as, as you might expect for a 26-year-old. So the social media is probably not the best place to find me. But feel free to check out my website and to uh, flick me an email or a message through there. Always keen to, to chat and see where I can help people. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for a great message about getting out there and living every day. And all the very best as you head around Southern Lakes District and uh, you know, relive some memories in Queenstown ahead of Mental Health Awareness Week. Appreciate it, Brent. Thanks so much for having me. You can hear Jake speak in Queenstown Wednesday the 13th of September, 7 to 8.30pm at Lake Hayes Pavilion. Tickets are free, but you must book online, so get to humantics.com and type in Mental Health Corero with Jake Bailey. Download the Queenstown app from the App Store or Google Play. Thanks for listening to The Outlet, your local interview podcast for Queenstown. If you have a story or an interview you think should be featured on The Outlet podcast, get in touch by using the contact button on your Queenstown app. The Outlet is produced and published by the Queenstown app and supported with funding from the New Zealand Public Interest Journalism Fund. All episodes of The Outlet are available on the podcast button on your Queenstown app and wherever you get your podcasts.